0: From the Cyber Hub Bunker in Spria, you're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Well, welcome to another episode of the CISO Talk Podcast. I'm your host, James Azar. We have a great, great show coming your way today. Really excited about this one. So you guys are going to want to stay tuned to today's show. Before we get started on today's show, please make sure to comment, subscribe. If you're listening on your favorite podcast listening platform, subscribe, give us a five star rating that helps push us up in the ranking. We are now kicking the top 100 in technology in the US and we want to Keep skyrocketing those polls, folks. So help us out. Today's show is supported by our friends over at No Before and Wistic. You've heard them before, but now you're hearing them one more time on today's show. So make sure to check out our great sponsors. And now, without further ado, our CISO guest for this week's episode, Jarek Beeson. He's the CISO over at Epic. Jarek, welcome to today's show. Thanks for having me. Nice um, to be here. I'm excited to have you here because you and I've had like a bunch of conversations. And I love LinkedIn because LinkedIn allows like everyone to connect with everyone and you meet people who maybe otherwise you'd never know they existed. Right? Like absolutely. Absolutely. Like my goal on this podcast is to highlight the many voices of Sysos who aren't really heard because they don't work for a big logo name company. Right, and and that's kind of like the point of the show is we're we're beyond just the um, we're beyond the brand, right? We're at the person, and Sistos have a very very difficult job.
1: Absolutely, there's only five hundred companies in the Fortune five hundred, right? And there's you know hundreds of thousands of other companies out there.
0: There's millions of companies globally. Millions of companies. Yep. Right. So, Jared, for our audience who doesn't know who you are, give them a little kind of uh, uh, introduction into, you know, kind of your background, how you got started in cyber and how and how long you've been in your current role. Sure, sure. So CISO at
1: Epic, I've been here for about five months now, but my origin story is a little unique, but I don't think it'll be unique 10 years from now. My first and only career was in cybersecurity. Uh, CISO wasn't necessarily a popular role at the time, but I knew that I wanted to lead a security organization. I didn't know if it was gonna be for a state, a federal agency, but I knew that I wanted to lead an organization specifically trying to protect their confidentiality, integrity and availability. I grew up in Los Angeles and I got accepted to UCLA. And UCLA is the school to go to when you grew up in LA, but they didn't have a cybersecurity program. And then ITT Tech right down the street had one. And I actually decided to go to ITT Tech. Was not a popular decision at the time. All of my classmates were on their second, third careers. And here I am, a 17-year-old kid trying to do a career right next to them. But it actually helped me grow up really quickly because I got to work with more you know, mature adults and not necessarily kids that are trying to party all the time. I ended up doing one of those commercials actually. So if you Googled my name, you actually will find a commercial where me and my family are saying, I went to ITT Tech and I'm a grad and I'm successful. And it's uh, <laughs> true story. Um, shortly after getting my associate's degree, I moved to Las Vegas to work in the casino industry. And I worked in I did access management, I did network security, I did a little bit of PCI work. And then I ended up parlaying that into a role with the Department of Energy, specifically the National Nuclear Security Administration. For those that aren't aware, that is the arm of the DOE that actually is responsible for all the nation's nuclear stockpile, the nuclear secrets, all the weapons, all is under that agency. And I started there as a security analyst and then information security officer. And it actually culminated with me actually leading a cybersecurity program for Lockheed Martin out in Nevada. I think I was 26 at the time. And on average, my team was about 10 years older than me. But uh, that's where I really kind of cut my teeth on NIST and FISMA, And those experiences kind of shaped me more than anything. From there, I went over to try my hand on a product company and went to RSA. RSA was pretty much the number one security company at the time from a product perspective. And I led PS in the RSA Archer space and the GRC, as well as their, their net witness practice, helping organizations build and transform their stocks. I got word that at some point in time, RSA, part of EMC, was getting ready to get sold to Dell. Uh, So I ended up making a move over to Deloitte. And at Deloitte, I did pretty much everything. I got my real first exposure to the C-level organization and all the C-suite. You know, my past at RSA, I worked with the SOC leaders. I worked with identity leaders, GRC leaders, but never really with the CISO, the COOs, the CFOs, and so forth. And in the big four, you start at that level. You don't necessarily work your way up. You work your way down it's strategy first there i got firsthand experience on what it's like to be a leader i ended up uh, doing some outsourcing and i outsourced one of my clients uh security programs and she ended up going and being a CISO in another place and she asked me to come with her she said hey can you come and build my strategy and architecture function i'm looking for you know someone with your acumen and your skill set and your background and i had just had my third kid i was ready to get off the road so I decided to take that on. I did that for a little while, ended up building identities, laying out the strategy, one that they're still kind of executing today. And it was my first foray into a Fortune 500 company uh, in that level of responsibility. Well, they, they got ready to offer me the CISO position. And then Epic called me. And Epic said, hey, you want to start from the ground up. We need someone to transform our organization. You know, I'd never really worked for a startup before, right? Big four, you're not dealing with startups. You know, RSA, those huge expensive products, you're not dealing with startups. So I got an opportunity to come over to Epic. They wanted me to build something from the ground up. And uh, I've been here for five months and been loving it ever since.
0: You know, I love the background of going from big companies and then ending up at a startup. I've like been the complete opposite side of that. Like, I've always been the startup CISO. In fact, I've got an entire um Twitter page that's called the Startup CISO, and I post really funny memes of CISOs working with like a shoestring budget, mm. you know, duct taping and WD 40ing your security program, uh, to make it. You know, to make it hold until you're you've got enough to where you can really build a program, and it's it's how'd you find that switch though? I mean, you know, going to all the resources to being in a place with you know limited resources, you know, limited budget. Had that switch work for you?
1: You know, I was a little surprised. I thought going to smaller organization, maybe smaller footprint, less work. It's completely wrong. <laughs> It's the same amount of work, if not more, because there are less resources, there's more technical debt, and there's just less maturity overall. Um, but at the same time, you can get more done, you can get things done faster. So the bureaucracy and the politics, they weren't as prevalent in the smaller organizations. So that, um, that's kind of the difference that I noticed so far.
0: That That's, that's awesome. Um, so l- let's talk a little bit about you know, as you're building your team now, especially as you know a startup CiSO, um kind of you know starting out everything, what are some of the skills you look for when you're looking to get people on on board? Well, I like to start off by honing in on the soft skills
1: and then I look for passion. I look for curiosity, and I look for just overall intellectual capacity. Depending on the role, I also look for their approach to problem solving. Right. And if I double click on the soft skills, I can teach someone anything technical. I can send them off to training. We can actually get that into you as long as you have the capacity to learn. But I can't make someone that's unlikable likable. Like it's just it's just hard to do. You can get them the training. You can teach them some things on how to communicate written and verbal. But ultimately, someone that just is, you know, a downer and a counselor on the team, they're they're just hard to work with. And the last thing I need is for someone to be avoiding my organization because of a single personality so i really focus on soft skills but then passion and curiosity are also important for me from a passion perspective you know we're being asked to solve the puzzle without the edge pieces right i mean it's it's really difficult to to do what we have to do we are inundated with new white papers new technologies new threats new threat actors new ttps it's just so much new stuff that you got to keep up with it and if you're not passionate about this field You're not going to stay with it or you're not going to put in the time so i I really want to see someone that's passionate that passion often leads to levels of curiosity and then lastly problem solving right i it's hard to tell in an interview how well someone solves problems so i more so look for their approach to solving problems so i like to choose an off-ball question that they may have never heard just to see how their brain works i usually tell them there's no right or wrong answer but usually there is a kind of wrong answer but generally speaking, I'm just trying to see how they approach things. And those are some of the things I look for when, when hiring uh,
0: new security people. I I love that. And, and sorry, I had to get headsets on because you, the, 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 I just needed more, more focus. <laughs> so, all right, let's, so, so, so I love, I love the skills that you look for. I think soft skills are critical. Problem solving skills are definitely needed. You know, I have a, I have a, Um, uh, something I tell my entire team, which is when we're looking to hire people, we want to hire based on diversity of thought, Mm -hmm. which is the idea of you want a diverse mix of people with a diverse way of thinking. So really taking it kind of into the, I don't want to say the extreme, but really into the place of what you just spoke about, which is, you know, you can teach people technical skills. I feel like a lot of technical skills, if someone has the ambitions and the smart and the drive, they can learn how to be a pen tester. They can learn how to be an analyst. They can you know, go take a ISC squared cert. They can go do a CompTIA cert and get that. But drive, passion, curiosity, problem solving, you can't teach someone that. There's no degree, no university, no program in the world that can make it natural.
1: Agreed. Agreed. It's 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 just one of those it's one of those things that, I mean, there there's enough self-help books out there that I have to believe some people are changing some of their soft skills. But generally speaking, you're you're kind of born with it, or you have to really want to to um you know hone in on those, those skills.
0: Right. I think one of the bigger challenges today in security, and I don't know if you experience this, and and maybe our listeners will agree or disagree with this one, but it's so many people see the amount of money that people make in security mm-hmm. that they're doing this career switch without the passion and they're just acquiring a bunch of certs over a period of a year like they go in to get their security plus they go and they get you know a, a pmp and something else and they you know they're applying for these jobs and, and you start to ask them really about security and you almost feel like you've asked them a basic question and they're failing at the basics Do do, do you get that do you see that as well
1: yeah, you, you can tell the people that have all of the acronyms but none of the substance, right? And you can also tell the people that are doing it for the money. Uh, for the most part, security people, in my experience, are altruistic, right? We really just want to save the world, and we're using cyber as our way to do that, right? Uh, you know, maybe we didn't have the bravery to run inside of a, a burning house or <laughs> or the guts <laughs> to be on the front line of a war, so this is this is where where we're doing it. In reality, we're on the front line of a new type of war. Right, and uh, I, I genuinely believe that the best security professionals, the ones that have the longevity, they just really want to do this, and they put in the time after hours. It's not a forty-hour job, for sure.
0: No, no, it's it, this is never a forty-hour a week job, right? This is a uh, a you're working around the clock. You have a specific mission. Weekends and holidays are sometimes a suggestion, and we saw that with Solar Winds, right? I mean. The people that had to respond to solar winds didn't have a Christmas, didn't have a New Year's, didn't have much of, of of anything, and they still don't have much. I mean, we're we're what a little over seven weeks from the first announcement, and there's still fallout to be had. I think today was the first day on the practitioner brief that I didn't say solar winds. Well, I, I wish I didn't
1: say solar winds today, but I probably said it at least five times. My customers won't let me not say. So it wins
0: at some point in time. That that is also very true. When you look at skills as a CISO, what are some of the skills CISOs require in order to really be successful leaders of their organizations?
1: Well, I think you have to be a good security leader, but then also a good enterprise leader, right? So if I I talk about the security side of things, you got to really be able to communicate with the tier one analysts, all the way up to the CEO because you're having different conversations with different people you want to establish credibility you want to establish rapport and relationships with your your engineers and your analysts but at the same time you have to be able to translate risk to the CEO and then I think it's important for security leaders and we kind of talked about this you know on our call on our talk before this call that you got to recognize where you're weak you got to have a level of situational awareness and you got to hire someone else that fills those gaps. But more importantly, you got to really empower that person to fill those gaps and not feel necessarily intimidated if they outshine you in certain ways.
0: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree that, that most, most skills there are, um, systems require a lot more soft skills and emotional intelligence in order to be effective across their organization.
1: A- absolutely. And and you can't always use FUD to, to get your way, right? I hear all the time that, you know, security leaders are pessimists, we've got to question everything and we got to think that the worst thing is happening. And I'm not saying that's not necessarily the case, but I'm more of an optimist, right? I, I'm not saying we shouldn't assume breach. I'm not saying that zero trust isn't the way to go and, and all of that, but I am saying you have to believe that we're going to win the war even if we lose a few battles, right? I didn't get into this profession as a kamikaze mission. In my heart of hearts, I truly believe that the good guys will prevail, and, and you got to believe that.
0: I, I completely agree. There's there's a necessity for good guys to prevail. Um, that's really um, that's really critical, and we play in a field where we have to play defense all the time. And for those football fans that are listening, SISOs, we have to almost play prevent defense all game long we don't we don't know what first down is or second down is or third down is so for those who don't understand who are you know i do have an international crowd so they're not going to get this so let me give it as basketball we have to play full court press all full all four quarters we can't afford to play zone defense we don't know what we're up against we don't know who's going to get what this is the only thing we know
1: Agreed, right? He- you, you are always on your heels, right? As, as much as you try to be on your toes, we're not offensive, we're, we're defensive. The only time we're ever offensive is when we're attacking ourselves to see how well our defenses are working.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Let's talk a little bit about CISO leadership beyond the security team, right across the enterprise. The CISO role is constantly getting elevated. We're really breaking down some of the restrictions and milestones that have been kind of huffing around the title of a CISO. Yeah. But now that CISOs are really in front of the board, uh, maybe sitting at the big boy table, maybe sitting at the adult table for the holiday, what are some of the skills that CISOs require there in order to succeed?
1: That's, that's a loaded question, man. There's, there's so much. I mean, first, you have to be able to translate security priorities into business value, right? And then on the reverse, you got to be able to take a business priority or business, you know, objective and allow them to execute it in a secure risk managed way. Right? So that's, that's first and foremost, if you're not doing that, you're going to fail because you're going to impede anything the business is trying to do. But more so than that, You got to be comfortable with PowerPoints and politics, right? I always say that anyone that's worked with me knows the value I place on presentations and PowerPoints because, like it or not, executives speak in PowerPoint charts and graphs, and you got to speak their language if you want them to hear you, right? And then we have all these ideas about what we want to do to protect the place, but we got to be able to inspire a shared vision, right? It's not enough to have a vision if you don't have the buy in for, for that vision. And any value add member of the executive leadership team, that is what they're doing, right? You look at the CEO, they are trying to add value to the organization, COO, CFO, all of that. And if you have a C on your title, you have to be able to do that. Um, And lastly, I think an undervalued aspect of being an enterprise leader is you gotta be able to be a coach, right? Coaches, using sports, perfect analogies, coaches call the plays, but they don't necessarily execute them, right? They train and they prepare and they provide feedback, but they're not the ones that are, you know, on the front lines. And they got the job because of their ability to generate positive results, right? That's what a coach is, not necessarily a manager, but a coach. You got to be able to coach your team, you got to be able to coach leadership, and you got to hope that the preparation that you provide, you know, actually shows up on game day.
0: I love that kind of uh, taking the sports approach and even polishing it off a little bit more and giving it the (laughs) the 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 stamp of approval you do have to be um, a coach across the enterprise let's talk a little bit about security so there's for for you know one of the things I've discovered um to kind of give people a little bit of a of of a uh, of an idea in in december i issued the infosec hires january challenge we wanted to get 10 people who were looking to get into cybersecurity hired Through LinkedIn, meaning not posting a job on LinkedIn, but through simply sharing their profile on LinkedIn with the hashtag and getting hiring manager to notice these people who may not make it through an ATS system, but could have all the soft skills you spoke about. And in this mentorship period that we're doing and and in the uh, resume reviews, one of the things that I'm catching on is the disciplines of cyber most people think cyber maybe only has two or three disciplines but, but cyber has many more disciplines yeah. even beyond the even beyond the CISSP exam disciplines what discipline of cyber do you spend the most time on
1: oh i would say today i mean it it varies by season but given that i'm a i'm a new ciso what i'm spending most of my time on is around formulation of my strategy and, and getting buy-in and getting it in front of you know my leadership team as well as my customers. Um, building rapport, building bridges, repairing other burned-down bridges, uh, creating bridges uh, that otherwise didn't exist. You it it's really relational at this point. Uh, I would say that the other thing that I'm really trying to figure out is, in my spare time, how do I change user behavior? Right? I don't have the the right answer, but I know that, you know, we're looking at it as security people, but there are people that study the brain. There are people that study how humans make decisions. And I've started to look into the behavioral sciences and other things to see what can we do, maybe even to have like a Pavlovian approach maybe to to this. We really want to generate a certain type of result and get users to respond a certain way when they're interfacing with risks. And today, by and large, we're failing, right? Phishing is the number one way attackers are getting in.
0: Yeah. I, so a very interesting approach. Um, you should go back and listen to the episode I did nearly a year ago with Justin Berman, the CISO over at uh, Dropbox. Because he kind of had an approach around user behavior where he said, I don't buy technology that doesn't back up the human. So he goes, we're doing technology wrong. So we're doing technology to almost defend what the bad guy's doing, but we're not thinking about what the good guy is going to do with what the bad guy is sending. So our idea is more um, awareness uh, and, and phishing tests, which in a way are effective, but they also create a level of antagonism Within the company, because the people who fail that, you know, their managers get notified they have to do an additional training, it takes them away from doing their job. And not to say that security isn't that right. But I think it's if you know, one thing I did is I wanted to do a day in the shoes of someone else in the company. And when I bring people on the team who are very, very experienced in cyber. And I've never done a day of, you know, that I've been working in IT and networking their entire career. I like to do a day in the, like, you're going to go and be a day in the shoes of this sales guy, this marketing person, this finance person, this operation person. You're doing their job. Yeah.
1: I love that, right? Usability, user experience, it has to be
0: top of mind. Because if, if you get in their way, they're going to find a way
1: around whatever you whatever
0: you put in. Right. I mean, so so speeding, right? We have speed limit laws, right? And before, you, you when you and I were young and we drove two-door fast cars, we had radar detectors that would let us know when a police officer was ahead of us, right? Right. And that, and that police officer would – and then we would slow down, and then we would speed back up, slow back down, speed back up. And now we do that with Waze right? Like the GPS uh, app on your phone, right? You know that there's a cop ahead of you, you slow down, it lets you know, you know, uh, police officer ahead. We find work throughs to laws through policies. And and I find the most effective policy that we ought to do is really understanding the human side. And I love how you bring that up, because I think that's, I don't want to say that's overlooked, because a lot of CISOs, I think feel the same thing you do, which is how do I address the human element, which is the most critical aspect of it, but we can't address it by just mere more training and more tools. Right. Right. Right? We have to really kind of customize our approach to the people and a day in the shoes of, and it's funny, I did that with one of our architects and I, you know, lifelong architect, the guy's never done anything but that. And I sent them to marketing and I had him do a day in the shoes of our marketing director. And the next morning we're grabbing a cup of coffee together and, and he's overwhelmed. And he goes, I didn't think of this, but you know that they use like all these different SaaS products and they're importing and exporting data. They export a lot of data in the excels to do all these different things. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, we never thought about this.
1: When I was when I was in consulting, I, oil and gas was an area that I consulted in, I had no idea how they got oil out the ground, right? <laughs> no idea. All I know is there was a drill and maybe some oil came out into, you know, a barrel, right? You talk about barrels. That's all I knew. And so I actually wanted to go out on the rig. And, you know, you go out there and you see all of the different IoT, number one, that freaked me out but but be, besides that you just you see all the individual steps and then you see how you're hindering those steps they're trying to do something that they're getting paid by the minute to do and they're having to put in a second factor of authentication right what is what is the risk for that right and because we said 2fa everywhere at the time that made sense right so it's it's important to see what the users are going through, what they're doing, you're going to identify new risk, and then you're going to identify where you've kind of overcompensated and added more
0: controls than, than necessary. So it's it's definitely important to kind of walk the halts. So you've been in your role for five months, and you know, you're, you're kind of bringing up the whole thing of strategy. What do you think the average time it is for a system in a new role to kind of establish a strategy before they're ready to really implement it and really get on the way of doing security. I got to give you the it depends answer, okay. um, and that's fine. <laughs>
1: so it it depends on a few different things, right? Are you, are you are you a new CISO, or are you replacing an existing CISO? Are you in an organization that is consolidated just in the U.S., or are they all over the world? Right? There's just so many different components that you have to consider. Uh, but as a as a new CISO, you're going to spend a good two months just helping people understand what a CISO is. Right, I'm not a security manager. I'm not i dir- I'm not a, I'm not a director of se- security. I am I'm am a C-level. I am a peer, and my goal is to add value to the business. And my way of doing that is through securing the business and securing you know revenue that's already out there. So that's that's the first thing. And then the the second thing is it depends on why you were brought on, right? If you were brought on because of a breach, you're probably going to come up with a security strategy a lot faster because it's going to be stop the bleeding you know get the basics in place and then we can figure out you know phase two and phase three of that strategy uh if you're coming on to just replace an existing cso you're gonna want to see what's being done well what's being done right and then where you can actually put your stamp on it so i mean it shouldn't be any more than four to five months in my opinion just because the adversary isn't slowing down Uh, but it, you can't have a strategy on the first couple of weeks either because you just don't know enough. You don't have the relationships. You don't, you won't have the buy-in and you won't have the context.
0: Yeah. It's um, I, I second that completely. So in your experience, you've worked over vast disciplines of cybersecurity on multiple projects. Which one are you most proud of and why? Ooh, done a few
1: different projects. I would say my my favorite project was when I was with the NNSA and I had just taken over security leadership. I was at Lockheed Martin at the time and my boss asked me to secure an automated patrol robot. So a uh, little bit of background, NNSA, they have areas, right? So you've heard of Area 51 and things like that. So that's how they break out all the different land out there. And most of that is property that nobody should be on. So they had patrol cars driving up and down all throughout, making sure no one was there, identifying if there's a trespasser and dealing with it. Well, that became costly, you know, gas, man hours, and so forth. So they purchased this robot called MDARS. It's still in use today by the Navy. And I had to build a system security plan, 853 plan on how to lock down this robot. It It was overwhelming at first. And then I realized at the end of the day, it's just a computer, right, with It's controlling robotic arms and controlling, you know, wheels and so forth and lock down the computer, lock down the network, lock down uh, the console that the person that's administering the vehicle is coming from. And uh, that was really fun because I got to say I secured a robot. Not many people can say that.
0: That's awesome. I've never heard of anyone securing a robot before. So I I love that. That's a first on the show. That's awesome. (laughs) 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 <laughs> you know, securing robots, uh, you know, that's that's securing something that's autonomous, which is kind of the next stage up. Right. It's 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 a very um, um, it's it's a very kind of 2025 thing. Right. Like, you know, ambitious plans is by 2025 to have some sort of autonomous vehicles on the road in some capacity or another talk a little bit about after doing that experiment with the robot kind of your personal opinion how difficult is it going to be to really secure an autonomous vehicle infrastructure in an autonomous vehicle
1: uh, I think it's going to be hard as long as humans and robots are both sharing the road at the same time right so when all the when all the cars, our robots, then they can communicate with each other. You can have your own forms of you know, protocols that are you know, out there to secure them. But when I'm driving my Ford Explorer and you know, the automated Tesla you know, is trying to you know, pass by me or something, there is no real way to communicate with that. So we're gonna have to come up with something in between. And I don't know that that's gonna be secure because it'll be the company that's not on the automated side trying to just create an API or something to communicate with the company that's on the automated side. I really fear for privacy. I think, I think privacy is, is actually going to be harder than security because right now the people that are really pushing this are Uber and Lyft and so forth. And I heard an example, a Lyft driver knows if someone threw up in a car, right? And they can go and clean it themselves. If nobody's in that car, you got to have some type of sensor to detect that that someone threw up. So now you can tie maybe a health thing to a person who knows what you know particle. I, I don't know, right? But it, it gets complex. It gets real complex.
0: Yeah, the privacy issue is very challenging, and that kind of brings up you know a CISO's role, right? Beyond the privacy of our customers of our organization, there's also the idea of the privacy of our of our um, internal clients, our employees, right. Our, 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 really our, our soldiers, our grand forces, the people who really, you know, make a company work. And in, in a lot of, you know, I'm hearing a lot of talk around um, biometrics or uh, a lot of talk around, you know, kind of uh, uh, using humans as a way to authenticate themselves and that kind of raises a little bit more of a security concern from, a, from, from that perspective, from, from a CISO perspective. How, how do you address that?
1: Well, I guess it, the, the first thing is biometrics are by and large accepted. It's invasive biometrics that are not, right? So if, if I ask for a thumbprint, people do it with their phone all the time. People would be happy to use their thumbprint as a second factor of authentication. Uh, in the future, but if I say give me you know a drop of saliva or a drop of blood, game over, right? So I, I don't I don't see us going to invasive biometric techniques at least unless it's a voluntary. I saw an article maybe a year or so ago. A company in the Midwest was chipping its employees, and the employees opted in to to do it, and that was how they they clocked in and clocked out. They knew that they were there or not there because you know the chip you know hit some sensor. I think that's a possibility in the future, um, but that's a that's a scary future. Privacy is out the window when that happens, and I'm hoping that I am no longer in the CISO seat and I'm watching it from the sideline when that happens.
0: Yeah, that's a. Uh, I think that's a very big revolt, right? Like <laughs> yeah. for for a lot of us, of a company putting a chip to clock me in and out is not only invasive. I think it's borderline illegal yeah today um but but i also think for for um f- for the next 20 to 30 years i don't see the generation that's coming up i'm not talking about gen z i'm talking about um the the generation of the teenagers of today the uh, covid aged teens who are more privy to privacy and and they're kind of uh what is it they said that the uh, teens of today are more they're the most conservative group since the 1940s in their opinions and mm-hmm. in the way they view things than any other generation in the last 60 years. Really? So it's a, I saw this survey like two months ago where they were talking to um, teens around the idea that, you know, TikTok takes all their information and they're like, well, if it's storing me dancing in my house, I don't really care. But if it does something else, it really ticks me off, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a very interesting kind of thing because I, I, I think we've reached a kind of like Gen Z was the end of the I'll compromise for digital convenience.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I see a pendulum swinging on that. You know, when there is a terrorist attack, People say, why didn't you know? Why weren't you in all their phone conversations? Why weren't you tapping every single form of communication? But then when that type of thing doesn't occur after a while and something pops up with, you know, any major company on on the West Coast, why are they listening to this? Why are are they doing that? Right. So I think the pendulum is going to keep swinging back and forth. And, you know, we had to adjust for millennials, right, when they came in me and my wife had this conversation the other day. She did not believe that emojis would ever be allowed in any type of business communication. And now people are doing smiley faces and off running and thumbs up and you name it. Right. And, and we adjusted. And now you see high ranking people doing the same thing. We'll we'll adjust. I don't know what the adjustment will be, but you got to keep the workforce happy.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's that concept of um, the, the, adoption of humans and that kind of goes back to what you said early on right how do i get the user to be more aware of cyber and now you talk about the idea of an emoji right like <laughs> what one of the aspects that we constantly talk about and 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 i constantly preach and i think there's th- there needs to be more of it which is how do we address the weakness of humanity and the weakness of humanity is what makes you human trust
1: absolutely
0: The willingness to want to do good and our adversaries they know that yep. they're well aware of it and they play on that so we can't tell people what society what would society be if we as security people said don't trust don't do good right would be would be a very as a society that you and i may not want to live in as human beings right right so how do we adjust technology to where it still allows people to trust and do good while protecting them? And, and, uh, and I don't know that we'll have an answer for it right now, right? But I think that's the challenge that's facing the next entrepreneur, the next um, um, CISO who's thinking of how do I solve the problem that I'm having that I know every single one of my peers is experiencing as well which is the human weakness in dealing with this stuff and there's no easy solution there's no piece of technology that's going to fix it immediately there's going to be a multi-layered approach i'm a big fans of i'm a big fan of defense in depth mm-hmm. and so how do we do defense in depth in a way where we can allow the person to be all the things that make them human but treat technology in a way where we filter it multiple times without slowing it down.
1: Yeah, I see a lot of ways to address this and use defense in depth. And I'm going to use that analogy and kind of put a spin on it. I think that we have to start early on, right? I mean, we have to embed these things into kids in elementary and middle school. But you kind of put made a good point. The current generation of teens—they're fully aware of the threats that are out there. They're fully aware of their privacy. So. We may just be waiting for the next generation to come in secure, right? That they don't require conditioning, um, but and, until then, you know we can get our phishing click rate down to one percent, which is pretty much unheard of. But depending on the size of your organization, that's still one too many, right? You rarely hear this breach occurred because ten people clicked on a fish. We usually say this breach occurred because somebody clicked on a fish. One right? person. So you you have to make sure that your technology is going to identify the anomalies. And, and that's where some of the newer technologies, I, I won't use the buzzwords that are out there, but the newer technologies that allow you to see patterns and changes in patterns, and, and that's what you have to do. The technology has to supplement the user. I view the training as just decreasing the attack surface and decreasing the volume of work that
0: my SOC has to deal with. I don't think that the training is
1: going to stop everything.
0: I love that. You just brought up an excellent point. And in my head, I was thinking of the meshup. Here we go. Here's the idea for the new startup. If someone steals this idea from the show, I will see you. I claim copyrights. Here it is. Human and network behavior analytics to identify anomalies that impact a specific user. So understanding how users behave in human behavior analytics understanding how the network typically performs and then recognizing anomalies within that to identify someone clicking a a phishing link that takes them to a you know fake website that's credential stuffing their credentials
1: yeah i think that's the promise of UEBA it just you know, user entity behavior analytics, right? It looks at user normal patterns, entity normal behavior patterns, and then you can kind of correlate all of that together. I don't think that that's necessarily how it's come to fruition, uh, but that is the ultimate goal. Just like when Sims first came out, they said they were gonna correlate everything and they didn't, right? I think UEBA mm-hmm. is, is starting down that path, but we really need to get to true machine learning and true AI and not this, you know,
0: well, we have true machine learning. The problem the problem we have with machine learning today is people don't understand the computing power in machine learning. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of true AI in security. I right. think there's only maybe less than a handful of companies that are deploying true AI. I'm not talking about buzzword marketing AI. Exactly. I'm talking about true AI technology. I think it's less than a handful. I'll gladly debate anyone on that. Because I've, I've literally been on sales calls with vendors who will remain unnamed, who'll go true AI, and I start to ask them AI questions, and their engineers start looking at me like, well, not and I'm like, so you're doing machine learning. Same.
1: Or you're doing database lookups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always ask them, like, so how are you clustering? You know, what are you, what are you using to cluster? What's your rationale? What algorithms are you using? If you don't have a good answer for both of those, you're not doing AI.
0: Right. You're, you're, you're just harvesting data. That's that's all you're doing, right? And, and people need to understand machine learning is something that's been around for years. I think over a decade, right? That it's been around. I think the first, I think, what is it? The first advanced Mac was already had some level of machine learning into it to, to mm. kind of build it into the users because the way the icons would organize would be by how the users interacted with the icons and where mm. they clicked most. I remember reading that in one of the, books about Apple. I forgot which book it was. It was over like six, seven years ago. So I I apologize that I forgot. But they were talking about how they were using machine learning to customize and get people to really enjoy their Apple experience more than Microsoft. (laughs) Makes sense. It's a very simple application, but... Right. Makes sense. But, But we can do the same. I mean, we need... I mean, really for security, if we have effective machine learning... We're okay. We're better than we were before because effective machine learning is really going to help us um, build behavior analytics that allow our SOC to really have more information. At the end of the day, you're trying to get more information in your investigation of an alert that shows up in your SOC in order to understand if you're dealing with a false positive or you're dealing with a with with, you know, God forbid, a real incident or if you're dealing with just a bunch of you know false alerts that just mean nothing, right? And so at the end of the day, that's what we need. We need effective machine learning. Absolutely, and
1: what I realize is COVID-19, in some ways people won't agree with this, has made security a little easier. Your users are stationary, right? They're coming from the same IP address pretty much every day. You don't have people traveling all over the place. You don't have diversity of how they're doing things. So while people are kind of confined in their own place, that machine learning algorithm that runs can truly get a profile that's not going to have multiple deviations.
0: That's such a great point. I'll agree with you there. And if someone disagrees, I dare them to come back and debate <laughs> us on this because you're right. It It's also made what I think used to be the biggest challenge for us, right? Which is the BYOD policies, mm-hmm. right? Now that people are working from home, you know, one of the things we did is we created an inventory of all home routers that are being used. And and so what we we ended up doing is we ended up grouping the routers and identifying a series of the most commonly used routers in our organization, identifying the vulnerabilities within those routers, and then using – we essentially went into our budget and bought all of those people new routers that we pre-programmed And help them set up virtual, like separate segregated networks in their home so that they have really secure routers. Because think about it. A really good secure router is going to cost you $100, $150. Right. Right. Like setting it up, if you're buying them in bulk and you're setting them all up pretty simultaneously is, what, another 15 to 30 minutes worth of work. You bring in, you know, one senior person with a bunch of interns, the cost of deploying something like that for us wasn't nearly as expensive um, when you compare it to the continuity of the business and the security of the business over the long term. Like it was a very small investment, but we knew that people are already going to work remote. We knew, you know, from a management perspective that we're going to be this way for the next year, two, maybe three. Yeah. Right. So. Why stay on a – and we we knew that sk- – when we saw that schools were not coming back in the summer, we realized that this threat was even greater. And mm-hmm. so while we initially did it for a select group, we ended up going across the entire organization over the fall and doing it for everyone. D- did you provide
1: dedicated routers just for your equipment, or can they connect all their home stuff to those same routers?
0: So we provided a dedicated router just for our office stuff. We helped them segregate their home network. Mm. We actually created videos of how to go in and segregate your home network. So that way people could go in and actually create a network just for their kids. We taught them parental controls. So now all of a sudden parents were limiting their kids on YouTube from the router and not from the device anymore. And what that did is now um, we, we built more ambassadors for the security program mm. because we've, we've gotten emails, right, from, from parents in our company that go, thank you so much. I've turned off our router at 9 o'clock now. You know, the kids are no longer on their phones or iPads. So we've been able to restore some level of normalcy to some of these households. I won't say all of the people in our company thank us. I think some kids cursed us out pretty Like we've been on some calls where the parents like overly blocked their kids and kids were calling like the parents were calling with the kid, like having a temper tantrum in the back and going like, how do I fix this? Because I accidentally did this. And so um, but I'll take two compliments over 10 complaints because I feel like those two compliments create two additional ambassadors that help us succeed in our security program over the long term
1: every ambassador you can get, right? I like to move security away from the center to the edge because we can't be in every decision. So the more you do to get the business and other people on board with your plan, the better.
0: So what challenges do you see cyber really kind of getting over, kind of becoming a thing of the past?
1: I think that we are, we're no longer having to fight for basic authentication things like 2FA, right? We, we no longer have to fight to prove that security is necessary. Uh, now, where the challenges are, is well, are you willing to take the measures that are necessary to improve it, right? But we no longer have to justify our existence. You now, for a long time, you know, CISOs were either fighting incidents and they wonder why you're even there, or they're not fighting incidents and they're wondering why you're even there, right? We don't, we don't have, have that anymore. We, we have a seat at the table. Uh, there's there's still a long way to go. I think we're starting to understand the difference between compliance and security as another thing, right? So for a long time, it was like, check the box. I have DOP, check the box. Whether it's actually detecting or alerting or anyone's monitoring, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, so I think we're, we're starting to move towards more, uh, more security and letting compliance kind of be the ground that we fall on. That's what I'm seeing.
0: I love that. That's a that's a that's a great outlook into where things are really uh, where we're really beating those challenges. I love that. That's that's brilliant. All right, so we're getting towards the end of the show, and my favorite part of the show, the CISO Insight Round, we get to learn a little bit more about Jarek now from a personal level. So, if if one um, Jarek, before we kind of proceed into the Insight Round, are you looking for people right now? Are you hiring? Is your team looking to add? skilled folks to it?
1: You know what, I just made my, my last hire for the quarter actually,
0: so I'm good. Thank you for asking though. That's awesome, all right, perfect. Because, um, you know, part of InfoSec Hires, trying to, you know, get people on and we're trying to build this database to help people really beat out the ATS system and 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 it's really important. So let's talk a little bit about the CISO Insight Round. Six questions, you're on the hot seat, here we go. Um, One buzzword you want to get rid of forever. So we've belabored the ones that I was thinking about initially. So
1: I'm going to go with DevSecOps or SecDevOps, however you want to put it. In my opinion, any developer that's worth their salt knows that security is a component of quality. right? So if you're a developer and you worry about quality, security is going to be part of that. So why do we have to call it DevSecOps? It's just DevOps.
0: I... Completely agree. Um, I, I don't want to say I completely agree. I think you're right in the outlook that any developer who doesn't take security in that isn't worth what they mm-hmm. are. But at the same time, there's a lot of the developers that look at that are so um misinformed around security that they're not consciously making security mistakes.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Would agree with that, and that's why we have to have the security checks throughout the process. But it should be part of the quality checks, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, my, my sons <laughs> in the background. <laughs> we love it. That's part of the show, and that's 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 the beauty. Thank you, COVID. We've had kids yeah. break into the show. We've had cats and dogs make appearances. We've had wives and husbands make appearances. We love it. That's that's part of the show, man. And and you know, kids don't know you're on a podcast,
1: right? My right. Wife, yes.
0: <laughs> What's one technology that will forever change the way we do cybersecurity?
1: Anything that kind of helps kill traditional VPN as we know it today. You know, zero trust architectures, identity as a perimeter, SASE,
0: <laughs> all those types of things I think will uh, help change what we do security. Folks, we have our first Kit appearance for 2021 on the <laughs> podcast. So, I love it. All right, brilliant. Let's talk about the last book you read Mamba Mentality.
1: It's a uh, Kobe's book. Kobe's book is a gift from my brother. Uh, powerful read. Powerful read about just having complete, utter dedication to your craft.
0: I um, absolutely loved that book. That is, I think every person should read that book. If you want to be a master of your craft, there was no – I don't want to hear anyone. If you don't like what I'm about to say, turn off the podcast. It's MJ, Kobe, Tim Duncan, AI, LeBron. For this generation. I think in, in – for this – I'm not going to go to Larry Bird and Magic. Yeah, and. Ahead. <laughs> and Wilt and Kareem. For a lot of our listeners, that's going to be like way over the head. But, but I think for when we look at Michael Jordan thereafter.
1: Yep. Agree with that list completely. I think Kevin Durant's getting close, but still that list I think is our first. We're
0: right. Kevin Durant played on super teams. Super teams. <laughs> he did. Uh, so did Jordan, but we can have that conversation later. Yes, that is also very true. <laughs> but no one had the work ethic that Kobe Bryant had. Absolutely. No one had, and very few people will have it. I think um, uh, uh, um, Leonard, what's his name? Um, Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard. He might be as close to that work attitude. I mean, Tom Brady. You know, we're we're talking Tom Brady's about. Tom Brady's got a Kobe Bryant mamba mentality type of work ethic the guy's Dude. up at 5 a.m his whole the guy's like 43 is playing like his 28 i think his snack is avocado ice cream like, like he, he, he is dedicated for
1: sure yeah what's the last movie you saw uh soul on disney plus it's a introspective look on it's really not a movie you would think would be on Disney, but it's an introspective look on, you know, what really matters most to us. I think they're trying to really get to the, to the heart of kids on that one.
0: Awesome. Um, your favorite music to listen to while you're working? While I'm working, smooth jazz. If, if something has lyrics,
1: I can't, I can't write words and hear words at the same time. So smooth jazz is, is really the type of music that keeps me calm and mellow in the stresses of the day.
0: What's one thing you've learned from the Solar Winds debacle so far?
1: Oh, that's a great question. You know, one thing I learned is how undervalued outbound filtering is. I, I think we, we think about all the things, but if you had the right outbound filtering or you blocked outbound traffic, you likely would have saw that first beacon because it would have been abnormal. So outbound filtering. And I guess a second, a quick second is not to crucify the first company that comes out, you know, that says, hey, we just got breached. Like, people stood behind Fire, FireEye more than I've seen any other breach in the past. And it turned out to be for good reason. They were the ones that let us know. They weren't the ones that, you know, were kind of caught with their pants down.
0: Well, I don't think SolarWinds was caught with their pants down either. For it. Right? For the oh, sake- yeah. For for, for, for for the sake of, 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 of full disclosure, um, this was an extremely sophisticated attack done by multiple threat actors over a period of time that was very extensive, where they studied every move before they made it. They then tested the move to see if someone would pick it up, and then they deployed something to see if it worked.
1: All of the above. I don't think I've heard actually how they got in. There's a lot of speculation, but I don't know how they got in. I know Once they got in, it was very sophisticated.
0: So so I've seen multiple stuff. I've seen multiple different things to it. I've been told that it was um, uh, someone like essentially sold credentials online, and it just so happened that they were able to get in through, through that, is my understanding. Wow. Some I've heard some people say it was a phishing email that they fished someone at SolarWinds. Um, and but I've been told by a few reliable sources that I trust, but hasn't been made public that it was someone actually sold credentials online. Wow. To give access.
1: You know, we keep learning more and more by the day, by the week. And I'm pretty sure we're not done learning. So this is definitely a fascinating one. This is going to be in
0: security books in the future for sure. That's insane. That's um, I, I think we're going to continue to learn more. I think the real aftermath of SolarWinds has yet to be felt. I think that's going to be around March or April that we're really see where we're able to put together all the pieces of the puzzle more or less, and kind of get an idea and be able to really break it down.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I agree. And, you know, like it or not, this is going to change the way we do supply chain risk management. Um, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but we're going to have to come up with a, a way to do a level of continuous monitoring that's not, you know, a point in time questionnaire.
0: Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's going to be very interesting to deal with the software supply chain management issue in fact i'm doing a webinar on it on february 23rd so hmm. we're going to be doing um our first webinar the cyber hub podcast talking about software supply chain management i think that's february 23rd at 1 p.m eastern time you'll find more information on our website at cyberhubpodcast.com but i'll send you an invite Jarek, if, if you and your team want to want to attend it we'll have uh, I believe someone from Airbnb on Airbnb manages over a thousand software, um, vendors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Send that over to me I'd be happy to, to partake.
0: Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be a really, really cool kind of, uh, what happens in a Vegas stays in Vegas type of webinar. So you'll definitely want to, want to tune into that one. It's, um, we're, we're kind of try to kind of dig into what are practical steps that people can take when it comes to software supply chain management because that's a real challenge what do you ask for what's in your purview right and i think that's that's also a big one like what's in your what's in your purview of asking someone to get access to their software i think that it's, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of questions there and i don't know that we'll have the answers on the 23rd of feb but we'll try
1: you know, our industry is always changing and there's constant new innovation. There will definitely
0: be some innovation in the space. Looking forward to seeing what it is. Me too. Jarek, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you partaking your wisdom and your experience and your story with me and the audience. I'm, I'm I'm grateful and I wish you continued success and luck in your role at Epic. And, and uh, I can't wait to see what's next for you, man. Pretty sure you're going to dominate this place. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, folks. Um, Jarek Beeson, Sista over at Epic. You can connect with him. His LinkedIn profile bio is below here in the description of the podcast. Um, if you're going to try to sell him something, uh, Jarek has a straight no, uh, buzzword policy in your approach. I'm pretty assuming that, right? No buzzwords, no buzzwords. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 um, th- that's that, folks. We'll be back next week with another episode tonight, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Tech Town Square with Eddie and myself is alive. We're going to be talking about China um, on this week's Tech Town Square. Everything you need to know about China and what it means to um, technology and cybersecurity folks and national security folks and geopolitical and kind of China's footprint. So, Join us with your questions. That's going to be live Monday through Thursday. I'm live 9 a.m. Eastern standard time with the cyber hub podcast for the practitioner brief. That's live on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can tune in by following us on cyber hub podcast and, um, and, and yeah, and that's that, that's that, that's it. I'm done with all my announcements. So folks, thanks so much for tuning in, Jarek. Again, thank you again for taking part of the show folks until next week. Stay tuned and stay cyber safe. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues and get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com.